morning to you. Good to see you today. Glad you, glad you made it. If you have a Bible, please turn to the book of Acts, chapter 1. The book of Acts, chapter 1, we'll be reading this morning, verses 6 through 11. Read here in just a bit, Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 6. Let's pray. Well, Jesus, we just pause and acknowledge you are our refuge. You are our eternal safety. In you, Lord Jesus, through faith in you, we, we, are, we are safe right now. Safe from all ultimate harm. Um, kept by you right now. Protected by you. And though uh, we're just beset on all sides with difficulties or pain or suffering, whatever it might be, we, we are still safe in you, Lord Jesus Christ. Ultimately, eternally safe. We thank you. Not just safe today, but safe tomorrow. Safe the next day. Safe Lord, in eternity, you, Lord Jesus Christ, are our refuge. Those who run to you in faith are protected. You are our strong tower. The righteous run to you and are safe. We bless you for it, Lord Jesus. And we would ask as we open your word here this morning, you would just bless us, Lord, uh, through your word. We thank you for it. Trust you'll do it. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, I started a sermon series, a new sermon series last week, preaching through the book of Acts. Just uh, an amazing book here. Uh, John Calvin said this about the book of Acts. He said, Acts is a kind of vast treasure. Uh, John Stott said this about the book of Acts. He said, thank God for Acts. The New Testament, or the last one-third of your Bible, would be greatly impoverished without the book of Acts. We are given four accounts in the New Testament of Jesus, in the four Gospels, but only one of the early church. So Acts occupies an indispensable place in the Bible. And over the coming months, we will have the privilege of taking a journey together through this amazing book of Acts. And, and for the first two weeks here, um, this Sunday and, and last Sunday, we're really just setting up the book of Acts a little bit. We're really just looking at this opening prologue here in verses 1 through 11. And you know how at the start of every Star Wars movie, you get that same opening. Uh, Many of you know the line. Here it is, the opening line. A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. And then you get some writing like this, scrolling off into space, that gives you the backstory, the, the context for the current movie. Some of you didn't know we were covering Star Wars this movie this morning. You, you, you like this church, don't you? Uh, well, well, you know, that's essentially what we have here at the start of Acts in this opening 11 verses. Uh, it, it's just a prologue that, that 
gives us the backstory, kind of sets the, the context for the book of Acts. We, we looked at the first part of the prologue last Sunday, verses 1 to 5. Just a reminder of what we covered back last Sunday. This book was originally written by uh, Luke, a Gentile, non-Jewish physician who traveled with the Apostle Paul. Luke actually wrote two books that you have in your Bible. He wrote the book of Luke, which I just finished preaching through last year, and he also wrote the book of Acts. Luke originally attended those two books to go together. Uh, uh, One big story in two volumes. The book of Luke, volume one, is about the life of Christ. It covers his birth, his death, his, his resurrection. It ends with the ascension. And then the second book, the book of Acts, which we're in now, it it goes from the ascension, which we'll see here today, and then it covers the next 35 years in history. Acts covers the start of the early church. It covers the initial spread of the gospel now that Jesus had returned to heaven. Luke wrote both Luke and Acts to a man named Theophilus, and he wrote the books to Theophilus to give him certainty, Luke says back in the book of Luke. Uh, This guy Theophilus, he he probably knew some things about Jesus, and Luke wanted him to have certainty about Jesus Christ. So Luke wrote these two big books of facts to this man Theophilus, who would then give it to his friends, and the book of Acts has made it all the way down to you, which is a huge privilege. And some of the main characters that we'll see here in the book of Acts are the apostles. The original disciples, there are originally 12 uh, apostles. One of them has passed away, Judas, who recently hanged himself, so they're now 11. These guys have now followed Christ for some two to three years. And these apostles, now that Christ ascended to heaven, they will now take center stage here in the book of of Acts. But the real main character in the book of Acts is Jesus Christ. Jesus will ascend to heaven here at the start of the book, but Jesus will still be doing the primary work here in the book of Acts. He will now just be working from the right hand of the Father, working through the Holy Spirit, working through these apostles, still doing his his deeds and, and speaking through these original apostles. So that's kind of what we covered last week, the first part of the prologue. Let's go ahead and read now the second part of the prologue, starting in verse 6. Luke says, so when they, the, the apostles, had come together with Jesus, they, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons, that the Father is fixed by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when He had said these things, as they were looking on, He was lifted up, and a cloud took Him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as He went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Amen. And you know, you stop and think about those verses. Do you know what we just read right there in those verses? Well, that right there, those were 
the final words of Christ during his life on earth, his final earthly words. And those final words there, they are infinitely important. What do we find there? Jesus just gave these men here their apostolic commission, their apostolic mandate. He gave them a call to to mission. We see three things in this passage concerning the the apostles' commission. The three things we'll look at here this morning. We, We see here the what, the how, and the where of their commission. Let's start first here with the what of their commission. What does Jesus now tell these apostles to do? It's it's very simple. You will be my witnesses. Verse 6 there says that Jesus and his apostles had now come together. Uh, Luke says down in verse 12 that they had come together here on the Mount of Olives. So just to the east of uh, Jerusalem. This is now 40 days after Jesus was resurrected from the dead. Luke said earlier that Jesus had appeared to his apostles many times during those 40 days, giving them many convincing proofs that he really had been risen from the dead. And now they've all gathered together here on the Mount of Olives 40 days after the resurrection, and the apostles now ask Jesus a question. If you look at verse 6 again. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And you you stop and think about these apostles here, man. These guys, at this point in time, were now expecting something very big from the Lord Jesus Christ. They, They just naturally assumed that Jesus would now do something very big, very soon, for the people of Israel. And man, it makes perfect sense when you think about it. Uh, When I preached through Luke, I mentioned several times that the Jews at this point in history, they had all kinds of messianic expectations. The Jews back at this time, they expected that the Messiah, when he finally came to Israel, as the Old Testament books promised that he would, well, the Jews expected that the Messiah would come in a certain manner, and he would instantly then do certain things. They thought the Messiah would come with a great display of raw power. And the Messiah would, when he came, he would just instantly conquer all of Israel's enemies, including the dirty Romans who were controlling Israel at this time. And the Messiah would then instantly bring the kingdom of God to its final conclusive form and usher in this eternal age of perfect peace and safety for the Jewish people, restoring God's kingdom for good to the people of Israel, the glorious conclusion of God's plan of salvation. The Jews, at at this time, they expected, as George Bush would have said, some serious shock and awe from the Messiah when when he came to Israel. That's what they were looking for. And listen, these apostles here, they were Jewish. They, they had been raised in this context. They had been raised to expect really big things from the Messiah when, when he came. That was one of the main reasons why these apostles here resisted Jesus' death so strongly. They knew Jesus was the Messiah. In Luke 9, a couple of years before this, the apostle Peter, he looked at Jesus and he said... You're the Christ. You're you're the the Messiah. 
And these guys did not then expect the Messiah to die. No, Jesus then told them a zillion and one times that he was going to die, that he would be crucified for the sin of the world, but they just couldn't grasp it. The Messiah die? Peter, who had a perpetual case of foot-in-mouth disease, uh, actually rebuked Jesus on one occasion for saying that he was going to die. God forbid, Jesus, you will not die. Rebuking God himself, which was a very Peter type of thing to do, man. And then listen, even later, when Jesus was betrayed, Peter resisted again. Man, he pulled a sword and hacked a guy's ear off. The Messiah die at the hands of the Romans? That's not according to plan. Grab your swords, guys. Uh, Our Messiah apparently needs a little help. Grabs a sword, hacks a man's ear off. It it just didn't make, make sense to these guys. Jesus, he's not doing these big cataclysmic things. Shoot, this thing even surprised John the Baptist, that, that Jesus didn't do these things. John the Baptist, he, he was in prison and he eventually sent, sent two servants to Jesus asking, are you the Messiah? Or should we look for someone else? Because Jesus was just not doing what everyone expected him to do. The Messiah, no universal cataclysmic things here. What's the deal with this guy? And you know why he wasn't doing those things? Because those Jewish messianic expectations were faulty. The Old Testament book said that when the Messiah came the first time, he would come not with a great display of raw power, but he would come in great hiddenness. A baby in a womb of a virgin, Isaiah 7. And the Messiah would come not as a conquering war hero, but as a suffering servant, Isaiah 52. And the Messiah, he would come not to destroy the Romans with the sword, but to destroy Satan, sin and death with the cross, Isaiah 53. But man, these apostles just couldn't get it. They had struggled the entire time they'd been with Jesus, struggling with these messianic expectations, hoping all along that at some point he'd finally do the stuff. And when Jesus finally did die, they lost all hope. Temporarily, Peter said he was going back to fishing at that point. But listen, at this point, Jesus has now been raised from the dead, restoring some hopes. And Jesus has now started to talk a lot about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which the Old Testament said that the Messiah would pour out upon his people someday. And these guys are now thinking the Messianic era, it's finally here. And these guys now just naturally assume This is the time when the Messiah will finally do his thing, man. 
visible display of raw power. Here it comes. Romans, here it comes. He's going to conquer the Romans. He's going to restore the kingdom of God for good in its final form to the people of Israel. And he will usher in his eternal age of perfect peace and safety for the Jews. The glorious conclusion of God's plan of salvation is now here. And the apostles now ask, is this the time, Jesus? When you'll do your stuff, restore the kingdom to the people of Israel. But their question here had some serious problems. John Calvin very famously said this, There are as many errors in this question as there are words. (laughs) Man, listen. The disciples were a little famous for asking what would be called stupid questions. (laughs) Excuse uh, parents who don't like your kids to say stupid, dumb questions. Uh, You remember Peter and and James and John on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus, they see his glory. Moses and Elijah are right there. And Peter says, do you want me to build three tents for you guys? No. (laughs) And here they go asking Another question with errors in it. I won't touch on all the errors in their questions because in their question here, we'd be here all day. And, And one thing I won't do here today is argue about eschatology. I don't know if you know this, but Acts 1-6, that question is a very popular verse in end times eschatology debates. I know some of you are thinking, where is he going to go with eschatology? People will argue for days over whether or not God is ultimately going to establish some sort of physical kingdom there in the land of Israel. Some of you believe God will do that. Others of you believe God will not do that. And I would simply say that I will not touch that with a 10-foot pole today because this is a sermon and not an eschatology class and it would take me four hours to do it. The great reformed theologian John Murray, who knew a lot about the end times, he was asked once what he believed about the end times, whether he was a premillennialist, postmillennialist, amillennialist, or some other kind of millennialist, and John Murray said, I am a pan-millennialist. I am convinced that all things will pan out in the end. And for the purpose of this sermon, you can just consider me to be a pan-millennialist. It will all pan out in the end. I will not argue eschatology, but let me quickly name just two errors that these apostles made here with this question. One error is this. These apostles here, they still thought at this time that God's plan of salvation was primarily just for ethnic Jews. Will you now, Jesus, restore the kingdom to Israel, to the Jewish people, thinking primarily there just of the ultimate salvation of ethnic Jews. And listen, the Jews at this time, they had thought like that for years. Even though God originally said to Abraham, the father of the Jews, that he would bless the Jewish people, and then through the Jewish people, he would bless 
all the nations, even though God had said that, many Jews just kept thinking that God was in the business of blessing just them, that God was a Jewish God. And these apostles here still thought like that to some degree. Here in the book of Acts, these apostles will resist initially when the gospel goes to the Gentiles. Halfway through this book, the apostles will, will say, well, it seems that God has given salvation to the Gentiles too. Really, it will dawn on them rather late. They still thought here that, that God's salvation was primarily just for ethnic Jews, and Jesus will now instantly correct them. He will say down in verse 8, I am going to send you apostles to places like Samaria and to the ends of the earth, not just to choose, but to Gentiles. That's one error here. They, they still thought God's salvation was primarily just for the Jews. And a second error that the apostles made in their question here, these guys thought... That, that they could predict the time when God's plan of salvation would ultimately be fulfilled. Man, they thought they had it figured out here. They looked around at the current events, everything that was happening, and, and they just thought they knew the timing of the end of all things. This is it, isn't it, Jesus, when, when you'll wrap this stuff up. We, we know, we know resurrection, talk of the Holy Spirit. We've read the tea leaves here. Jesus, you're fixing to rock this place. <laughs> we know it. A fundamental error, an error many people still make today. You look at the current events, how things are lining up, you put those up next to the Bible, you read the tea leaves, and man, you, you suddenly know when Jesus will conclude all things. Uh, Harold Camping predicted Jesus would return on September 6, 1994, and he didn't. So he recalculated, and he said Jesus would return on May 21st, 2011. And he didn't. And Harold Camping then passed away. And a zillion other people have thought that they knew the time when Jesus was returning. But here's the thing. Jesus himself said in no uncertain terms that no one would know the date. Here it is, Mark 13, verse 32 Jesus said, but concerning that day or that hour when the end will come, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Amazing statement. Jesus, during his time on earth, not even Jesus knew the date of the end. His Father had hidden that from him for, for some reason. And Jesus now says the same type of things to these apostles here who think they know the timing. Jesus corrects them. Look at verse 7. He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority. It is not for you apostles 
to know the time of the end, which only the Father knows. So, so listen, the next person who knocks on your door and tells you that they know the date of the end, when Jesus will return and conclude all things, just know this, they are wrong. <laughs> and if by chance they happen to guess the correct date, well, Jesus will then probably change it so that they will definitely be wrong. Somebody who tells you they know the date is telling you they, they know more than Jesus Christ during his time here on this earth. It is incredibly presumptuous and arrogant and wrong. Don't get caught up in it. It's a trap. You will never know the exact time of the end. It will come, as Jesus says, like a thief in the night when you don't expect it. So, Jesus says, get ready. And stay ready. And then just do your job as, as a Christian. That's what Jesus essentially says to these apostles Man, they're sitting around, they're speculating about the end of all things. They're asking Jesus this question about the end. And Jesus essentially just looks at them here and says, don't worry about it. You got a job to do. You got a job to do. It's a good correction for a lot of Christians today. You know, a lot of Christians today, they they just want to kind of sit around and talk endlessly about things like the end times. Exactly how and when Christ will return. And please hear me on this. There's nothing, nothing inherently wrong with talking about the end times. The Bible does. And we want to know what the Bible says about the the end times. We want to know what we believe about the end times. I have my own strong beliefs about the end times. But some Christians just sit around and obsess over it. That that's all they really ever do, just kind of sit and talk, talk, talk. And, and Jesus then comes and, and whispers in your ear, don't worry about it. You got a job to do. So figure out what you believe about the end times. I mean, man, read the Bible. At some point, I'd like to do a sermon series on the book of Revelation. Read Revelation. Grab, grab Wayne Grudem's systematic theology and read up on the different positions and be convinced in your heart. Study it. Know what it says. Please don't, please don't just go grab the Left Behind series and read those. Uh, that's what a lot of Christians have done. And um, yeah, and Nikolai's coming back at some point, whatever that guy's name is. Uh, so man, read up on it. Know what you believe about it. But man, know that there's a good chance... You're probably wrong in some ways. So hold it loosely and get ready and stay ready and just do your job as a Christian. And for these apostles here, Jesus now has a job for them. Basically avoids their question here and uses this opportunity to give them their final apostolic commission. And what Does Jesus want them to do the what of their great commission here? Look at at verse 7 again. He, He said to them, it is not for you 
to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. That's their job. The what of their commission, you apostles, will be my witnesses. What, what does that mean exactly for, for these men to be witnesses? Well, you can probably think of a court of law in our country. You have a witness in a court of law in our country, and that witness simply testifies, simply speaks of the things that he or she has heard or seen. And that's what Jesus was now telling these apostles to do. These guys had been chosen by Jesus back in the book of Luke, and they had been chosen to be his eyewitnesses. They had now lived with Jesus for some two to three years. They had seen Jesus work his miracles. They had heard Jesus' teachings. And these men are now being sent by Christ as witnesses to testify, to speak about the Lord Jesus Christ. They're, they're simply sent out here to go and tell people about Christ. To tell people about the good news gospel message of this Savior who had died and risen and then ascended back to heaven who did these things in order that sinners like you and, and me might be saved. And they will go out and call people to respond to that gospel message. They will call people in the book of Acts. They will call people like you and me to repent and believe. Turn away from your sins and repentance and trust in and follow Christ in faith. And God will forgive you of your sins and bring you into his eternal family. Witnesses. That's one of the recurring themes in the book of Acts. These men will now say in the book of Acts some 39 times that they are witnesses. Testifying of what they had seen and heard with the risen and ascended and living Christ. They'll be witnesses. That's the what of their commission. The second thing here is the how of their commission. How will these guys do this thing? How will they, 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 they be bold and compelling witnesses for Christ? Well, if you look at verse 8 again, Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses. You know, when you look at the book of Acts here, the Holy Spirit, the, the third person in the Trinity, man, he is a major player here in the book of Acts. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this about Acts. Live in that book, I exhort you. It is a tonic. The greatest tonic I know of in the realm of the Spirit. And man, you think of these apostles here. In just 10 days from this point here, the Holy Spirit will begin to move in some dramatically new and powerful ways in which the Holy Spirit has never before moved previously in all history. Up in verse 4, Jesus told these apostles to remain in Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Father, which 
was the Holy Spirit. Jesus said up above that in 10 days from now, they would actually be baptized with, or, or maybe a better translation is baptized in, the Holy Spirit. And man, we'll see it. Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit will, will, will fill these apostles, take up residence in them and, and on them like no other believers before then. And what will they then receive from the Holy Spirit? Jesus said, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. British writer Charles Williams, he was a good friend of C.S. Lewis, he once said this, he said, Jesus departed scattering promises of power. And the Holy Spirit will do it, empower these, these 11 apostles here, empower the other disciples around them. What will the Holy Spirit empower them to do? Well, Jesus says, you'll receive power and you will be my witnesses. <laughs> you think about this power from the Holy Spirit, man, upon these apostles. These guys will work some amazing miracles in, in, in the book of, of Acts. So they'll see, they'll see blind eyes opened and, and deaf ears open. They'll see the dead raised again. But listen, they, they won't receive this Holy Spirit power just so they can then work all kinds of cool miracles and, and make a name for themselves and maybe then get on TV and make lots and, and lots of money. No, that's not what the power of the Holy Spirit is for. The Holy Spirit would come upon these men and empower them to be witnesses, to be witnesses of, of the risen and ascended living Christ. And these miracles that they perform, they will authenticate or confirm what these men are saying about Jesus. Do you, do you, do you want to know that, that what we're saying about Jesus is real? Do you want to know that Jesus really is living you see the dead guy over there? Boom, he's living. Jesus is real. <laughs> you see the blind guy over there? Boom, he sees Jesus is real. Those miracles authenticate what, what these apostles would say. And when they work the miracles, you know in the book of Acts, people come running to them. Not so they, be, they can then become rich and build a big church in their honor. No, every time the people come running, they then stand up and they witness about the Lord Jesus Christ. Many of them being martyred for what they do. That is the purpose of the power of the Holy Spirit. Ultimately, that God would empower His people to be bold and compelling witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the what and the how of these apostles' new commission here. You will be my witnesses, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And the third and final thing here, the, the where of their commission. Where will these guys be witnesses? Well, you look at verse 8 again. Jesus gives it to them. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end 
of the earth. And you know what Jesus just gave you right there? That is basically the thesis statement for the entire book of Acts. That right there, (laughs) that's pretty much the outline for the book of Acts. You could, you could look at that and say, that's the table of contents. Don't you like it when a book gives you the table of contents? You pick up your Bible when you're first starting to read it, and somebody mentions, you know, lamentations. And you're like, oh my word, I hope they give me a page number. I could be lost in this thing. Oh, but then you learn, wow, there's this thing called the table of contents. I'm going to go right there. I still, no, I don't. But it's there if you need it. And, and man, Jesus just gave us a table of contents. For the entire book of Acts, that right there is, is what's going to happen. That right there is where these apostles are going to go and be witnesses. First in Jerusalem, then all Judea, then Samaria, and finally to the ends of the earth. In the first seven chapters of the book of Acts, these apostles are witnesses in Jerusalem primarily just to the Jews, thinking that God's salvation was still pretty much just for the Jews. But then in Acts chapter 8, Stephen is stoned, which causes all the disciples and early apostles to be scattered to outlying areas, Judea and Samaria, where they now begin to talk about Christ to Gentiles. And by the time you get to the end of the book of Acts... These apostles have made it all the way to the city of Rome. Some 2,500 miles in 35 years, planting churches along the way. And listen, where these guys were standing right here when Jesus talks to them, Rome would have felt like the end of the earth to them. These are a bunch of fishermen. They hadn't traveled more than 100 miles. You're sending us to the ends of the earth. Places like Rome, right. Jesus probably felt a little bit to them like Buzz Lightyear. I'm sending you to infinity and beyond. Yeah, right, Jesus. But the Holy Spirit will empower them. And they will go. Jerusalem. Judea, Samaria, and ultimately all the way around to what would have seemed like the end of the earth to them, to Rome. And man, you stop and think about what's going to happen right here in the book of Acts. This is a massive change of direction now in the Bible. Uh, Up to this point in history, God has drawn the nations in to his people in Israel. Israel, kind of like this centripetal force driving the nations in toward the the, the country of Israel. We'll see the high point on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, when people from many nations are in Jerusalem to worship God. But listen, man, as soon as God pours out his spirit on these apostles here, it's like this massive bomb goes off in Jerusalem and everything now begins to go out. God no longer drawing the nations in to his 
people there in Israel, this centripetal force, but God now driving his people out to, to the nations, uh, the, this centrifugal force. And, in, and several of you now are saying, I didn't know there'd be science or physics here today, whatever that stuff is. Just know it's the difference between going in and going out. <laughs> and it's changing to going out now here in the book of Acts. God now beginning to drive his people out empowered by the Holy Spirit. And God will do it in this book. He will send them out now. Man, being martyred, being persecuted, suffering, they will go out in concentric circles to these places right here, ultimately ending up in Acts 28 there in Rome. And Jesus now, man, he's just handed to his disciples this, this, this massive commission. Their apostolic commission. This is why he originally brought them in. So they could see and observe. But now be sent out to go and tell. And after Jesus hands this commission to his apostles. He just departs. <laughs> he just leaves man. See you later if you look at verse 9 again. And when he had said these things as they were looking on. He was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. <laughs> Luke simply says here that these apostles were looking on and he started to ascend. And a cloud took him out of their sight. Can you imagine what that would have looked like for these men? You know, a cloud in the Bible is often a manifestation of God's glory. Moses saw the cloud of God's glory on Mount Sinai. The cloud of God's glory later appeared in the tabernacle and in the temple. And here it is again. A cloud of God's glory now takes Christ from their sight and he's gone. And these apostles are one final time his eyewitnesses. You may not have noticed it, but Luke says, Three times in verses 9 through 11, three times he uses different verbs for seeing. Three times. Luke wants you to know that these men saw with their own two eyes Jesus ascend into heaven. And they will go out now and many of them be martyred telling people about it. They knew that it had happened. And while they're gazing into heaven, as Luke says, you could just picture them. I mean, gawking might be a good word. Mouth open, dumbfounded, you know, something like that. Well, two angels appear and give them assurance. Men of Galilee, this Jesus who just ascended, well, he will come again someday. 
And did you notice at the end of verse 11 how Jesus will return? They say Jesus will come again in the same way as you saw him go. What does that mean? I think it means a couple of things, and the Bible indicates that it means a couple of things. One, it means that Jesus will someday return visibly. He left here visibly. They saw him, and he will return again someday visibly. Only this time, he won't be seen by just 11 men, but by the entire world. The Bible's saying that Jesus will return like lightning that flashes from one end of the sky to, uh, to the other. He, he will return visibly. He will also return to this earth physically. He left in a physical body. And he will someday return in the exact same physical body that they saw here. You know, I think a lot of Christians believe that Jesus, when he came to earth, he just kind of borrowed a flesh suit (laughs) and he walked around in it. And then when he ascended to heaven, he kind of unzipped it and left it behind and boop, his spirit just went up to heaven. That's not how it worked. John once says that Jesus, in his incarnation, he became flesh. John Polhill says this, The amazing miracle of the incarnation is not only that the eternal Son of God took human nature on himself and became a person who is simultaneously God and man, but also that he will remain both fully God and fully man forever. Or as my uh, seminary professor Derek Thomas said, he said, the ascension signaled that the dust of the earth His human body of flesh and blood now occupies some place in the universe that we call at the right hand of God. The dust of the earth now sitting on the throne in heaven. God will not lose anything of that which He created, including human flesh preserved in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we will all ultimately have flesh and blood flesh and blood bodies as well. Jesus, right now, both fully God, fully man, human, forever. He'll return visibly. He'll return physically. One other way that Jesus would return in the same way he ascended here, well, Jesus will return with a cloud of glory. He disappeared here in a cloud. And the Bible indicates that when he returns, he will be riding on a Cloud. Here it is, Matthew 26, 64. I tell you, Jesus said, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. What will that be like when he returns visibly and physically like lightning riding on a cloud of glory, a cloud of heaven? Man, So Jesus is now ascended back to heaven. And right before he did, he spoke his final words here on planet earth. This apostolic commission. The the what, the how, the, the where of an apostolic commission. You'll be my witnesses, empowered by the Spirit to all those places and to 
the ends of the earth. And you know what? These guys, they, they now got a job to do. Uh, did you catch what the angels said to them in verse 11 as they gazed up into heaven? Do you see what the angels said? Men of Galilee, why do you stand there looking into heaven? Jesus will return. Trust him. It will all pan out in the end. You got a job to do. And please hear me on this. This job that the Lord Jesus gave to his original apostles, that's been handed down to us. This is our foundation as a local church. This is your foundation as a Christian. The book of Ephesians says the church has been built on this foundation of the apostles. The apostolic commission that Jesus gave to them, that's been passed on to us. Look, they, 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 as far as they were concerned, they, they were close to the end of the earth in Rome. They weren't at the end of the earth. There was a long way to go. And that has now been passed down to you and me, to our local church. We have inherited that commission. We have a job to do. You know, it's easy as a Christian just to kind of sit and gaze up into heaven your whole life. Enjoy Jesus. Talk about the things we have in Christ. Talk about end times things maybe. Nothing wrong with enjoying Jesus. We want to do that. Talking about the things we have in Jesus. Talking about end times things, yes. But listen, if that's all we do as a local church, at some point Jesus comes up and whispers in our ear, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven. You got a job to do. And our job. Witnesses. Empowered by the same Holy Spirit. Who empowered these guys here. And we've been empowered to go to the ends of the earth. I'll leave you with one final quote here by Kent Hughes. He says these were Jesus' final earthly words. It has been 2,000 years now, and Jesus has not during that time planted his feet again on terra firma and audibly addressed his followers. Perhaps that silence is intended to prevent anything from obscuring Jesus' last words so they will continue to reverberate in the church's ears. Our Lord has laid down in the clearest terms the mission for those who are to follow Him. This is the mission of the church that would dare to call itself New Testament. This is the mandate of apostolic Christianity. May God help us to receive this mandate as a church and run with this thing to our homes, our neighborhoods, and the ends of the earth. Father, we just thank You. We know we have been built upon this foundation here. Father, just so good to be reminded of that here this morning. And I pray, Father, we would never lose sight of this, Lord God, that we have been drawn into the kingdom and now sent out to see others brought in. Help us, we pray, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen.